Good evening. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. And this is a live streamed event, so welcome to our audience online too. Tonight's conversation is between Anthony Gormley and Ivana Blaswick, two of the leading practitioners of their professions in the world. Anthony is uh, a Knight of the Realm, a Royal Academician in that order, um, the winner of the Turner Prize and Premium Imperiale, whose work is publicly cited quite literally from the western deserts of Australia to Crosby Beach near Liverpool or Gateshead on the other side of the Pennines, depending on where your loyalties lie. He's in public collections again from the National Gallery of Australia to the Pompidou to Tate, even the Design Museum I noticed recently. And his exhibition that's just opened two weeks ago at the Royal Academy is a landmark in almost every sense. He talks about it in terms of a test site where we, the viewer, test ourselves in the context of the building, of the architecture, of the space around us and the cultural context in which we find ourselves. I won't bore you with statistics. Well, I will, just a few. Eight kilometres of aluminium tubing, over 300,000 spot welds, 27 tonnes of steel to make one body form, 26 tonnes of Buckinghamshire earth, 20 tonnes of seawater to make the piece host. But the work is so much more, and the exhibition is so much more than mere statistics. And Anthony is a materialist, an artist who is intrinsically curious about the qualities of what materials can do and how they are enacted in spaces and the impact it has on the spaces and on us, the viewers. In conversation with him is Ivana Blaswick, OBE, and since 2001, director of the Whitechapel Gallery, whose career has taken her through Tate Modern, Fiden Press, and also the ICA, where in her first major job as director of exhibitions, her first significant exhibition in 1981 was Objects and Sculpture, which launched to national and then international prominence a generation of British sculptors that included Bill Woodrow, Anish Kapoor, Richard Deacon, and, yeah, you guessed it, Anthony Gormley. So they go back a long way. And actually, most recently, their professional relationship flourished again. Anthony did an extraordinary installation in the sanctuary of Apollo on the island of Delos, which was co-curated by Ivana Blaswick. So without further ado, please welcome to the stage Anthony Gormley and Ivana Blaswick. Thank you very much, Tim, and, and thank you all for joining us tonight. Just to uh, reiterate, this event is being live-streamed. If you're watching at home, thanks for joining us. There will be a chance for questions from both the audience and online at the end. So please share your questions for Anthony in the comments or using the hashtag AskAnthonyGormley. So tonight we're going to structure our conversation around four actions, to draw, to embody, to mass, and to sight. We'll look back to the works of art and places that have inspired Anthony, and we will cast our gaze between his RA exhibition and the world to see how these actions manifest as works of art. In the beginning is drawing. So we're going to start with, if I can get this, the first section of our talk, draw. 
And we will look now at a series of images that have provided a kind of source of inspiration for Antony with this very, very enigmatic uh, drawing by Stanley Spencer. Tell us about this. Hello, everybody. Um, Yvonne is a professional, and she's given structure, because otherwise we might have wandered off into dark holes. Um, it's really lovely to be here tonight. It's, it's lovely to do this. This is what this place is for. This is a fantastic auditorium where, in a way, yeah, the root hairs of what art can be, what it can be about, how it can be pursued, I think can be shared and discussed. And I'm so happy to be here with Ivana, an old friend and supporter, not just of my work, but of all forms of art. So drawing, um, yeah, for me, I, 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 I just think drawing is just a way of visual thinking that is essential. And we're looking at, a, a drawing by Stanley Spencer. I think it was probably made about 1919. And what I, I did my thesis, I studied art history for a while, um, and I did my thesis on Stanley Spencer. And he used to talk about inspiration as being this packet, this kind of parcel that arrives unbidden. Uh, he thought it came from God, but I, I, I don't think we mind about where it comes from. What, what, what he wanted was to be able to translate this internal vision directly. And when I was, when I was writing that, um, I was going through two great big old tea chests that were in uh, the, the, the archives of University College London. And I came across an old maths uh, book, you know, one of those sort of squared up. And there were 40 tiny squares, and each square was one of the uh, Christ in the Wilderness series. And it was quite extraordinary. Those little squares were equally squared up. And it's that thing of honouring the point of original thought that I, I, I was glad. Yvonne was the one who suggested that we talk about Stanley. And I think there's something fantastic. This is not, this is about responding to an internal kind of realization. And it's nothing to do with verisimilitude. It is this, I mean, I, I just find this drawing very beautiful because of that sense of immediacy and the light coming from one side. But the main point about this was to establish that drawing doesn't have to be about the accurate depiction of something outside of you. What are they doing? Um, I have no idea. It looks like they're, <laughs> they're, like they're joyfully um, kind of doing the laundry or Searching something. The... Um, but no doubt it's a biblical scene of some sort. Um, the next image we're going to look at is Giacometti, which um, I think is a very interesting precedent for your own work because we'll see that drawing for Antony is <clears throat> not so much about recording the visible world. It's not about observation from the real world. It's more, I think, about an expression of a sense of being. And Giacometti, perhaps, is one of the most uh, exemplary artists in this relationship between mark-making and existence. Yeah, I'd, I'm not sure that... I, I, I thought that we were going to look at, uh, at Giacometti because, in the end, his work is actually about talking about the space between the artist and his model, 
In this case, this is his wife, Annette. And then, you know, citing that within an interior, within his studio often. And I think what I, I just love Giacometti's work in all its forms, but particularly his drawing, because of this insistent, in a way, charting of the, the distance between his eye and the eye of the, of the model. So often the eyes become these twin focuses for all of this perspectival work. This wasn't the, the, the best one I could find, but it was the only one that we could get that would be reproduced big enough. But the, the, the obsession that Giacometti had was, in a way, nailing reality, nailing reality through that act of, if you like, intense observation. And the fact that he constantly failed, that he somehow, he, he somehow couldn't, he couldn't capture the truth of the presence of another body lying outside of him. That the um, studio is also key, that it's, it, it's the thing that bounds the body, that frames it, that contains it. And he's always, um, I think, looking at corners and these deep perspectives as a way of containing the figure. Yeah, I think he's always bouncing the line, and he? he's going from, as it were, well, I, I, he, the, the reason that usually it is the head that receives the kind of the maximum amount of density is that he's constantly going from the edge back to, the, to, to that focus. And, um, I mean, he, you know, he, he influenced so many people, not, not least, you know, um, artists that have taught here and artists that uh, taught at the Slade when I was there, like Ewan Ugler, um, who were really interested in the same thing. In other words, mapping vision, mapping the action of the eye in space. But anyway, I, th I think we... we um, oh, look, there's something in mine. Yeah, we're here, yeah. so here, here is me thinking... Um, I think this sketchbook is actually in the exhibition. I, I, I carry a, a sketchbook all the time, so I've, I've probably got one in my pocket now. They're, you know, I've, I've moved to the Muji because it's soft and it goes in the back pocket. Much easier. Uh, you can buy one. Even with, um, uh, they're very cheap. But the, the, the way that I guess I'm now, this is entirely thought, but I'm sort of a bit in both camps here. I'm imagining uh, a body case in space. This must have been made in probably the late 80s. And I'm thinking, well, I can put this thing on the floor or I can put it on the ceiling, but I know what I want. I want, I want to pierce this lead carapace, this empty box in a body shape at the eyes and make that in a way, a focus for, the, for, the, for anyone coming into the room. So and these um, notebooks, which in, in the exhibition, there are maybe dozens of them. It's a fantastic insight into the kind of creative process. Um, and I love the fact that they're hand-shaped. Um, are there a way also of working out technical issues? Sometimes, but on the whole, 
they're just there as a well it's I guess we all have a mobile phone now. We, we take photographs, but we also make, we also make kind of um, notes. And I guess this is, this is for me a, uh, an extension of the brain that involves yeah, writing or drawing. So there's as much writing as there is drawing in these. And it is really just, I think, to register an idea and then maybe to develop it. So, so some of these, I, I, aeroplanes, trains, car journeys are no good, um, but, but anywhere where you're at rest and you're not uh, you know, in conversation, uh, and, those and are times that... Do they have a diaristic um, yeah, quality? I mean, are they're, they're, <laughs> it struck me that they're also like authors taking notes and that there is a sense of perhaps consciousness, of a flow of consciousness that is captured amongst the tiny pages of these notes. Well, they're all sorts of things. So they, they may be notes, you know, about what I've got to do. They may be to-do lists, but there, may, there, were, there would also be, uh, you know, I've been recording my dreams for as long as I can remember, so they're, they're in there as well. And then there may be, you know, there may be uh, drawings of where I am, you know, looking out of the window or, or uh, yeah, standing... Uh, by the sea. Um, <clears throat> this is a drawing of um, Trisha Brown and, uh, and Siobhan Davis. Um, and it's interesting no, this is that... Both, they're both Trisha Brown. They're uh, both these Trisha are, Brown. But, but, but um, I think that yeah, yeah, um, Siobhan Davis has also used this same idea, which is that somehow the, the drawing, the total... Um, body can be an instrument of drawing that it can, as it were, be used to leave its own trace. And uh, I, I, I think that, that there was a moment in Trisha Brown's work where she was talking about how the body might extend itself. There's that wonderful uh, record, both in film and and in wonderful black and white photographs of a a performance she did on the roofs of New York, where she was literally semaphoring between bodies. Uh, across those wonderful uh, you know, water, water tanks uh, on the skyline of New York. And I, I think that right from the beginning, I was, I was less interested in, in a sense in, in, as it were, just using the skill of the body to draw than I was in the idea that the body could leave a mark of its own existence. And I think you see that you see that in 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 the drawing and and in some of them I have tried. So with exercise between body and earth that is uh, in the second gallery. This 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 work. So this it, is one of the earliest works in the show. Yeah, it and, is. Yeah. Um, what is so interesting about it is that the drawing has its own life. That it starts from the form in the middle and grows outwards from that. Tell us about the title. Between exercise between blood and earth, I guess there's a blut und Boden, you know that that old romantic German uh, kind of idea about self and identity coming from a fixed place. I mean, I, I think I may be being over intellectual after the event. I I I I did this actually. Uh, first publicly in Milan, in the Triennale in, in 1980. Um, 
And I guess what I was trying to do was reconcile two things. One was the idea of progress, the idea of human volition, the idea of movement. And then the, the, the fact of sculpture and the fact of architecture being static, being still. So at the, at the core of this is, a, is the silhouette of a running uh, body that is repeated both inside and outside that, that uh, yeah, bounding condition. And I think this, this happened at exactly the same time when I was making work that really examined, uh, I guess, the, the provisionality of edges generally. And I think I was thinking about, about yeah, the annular rings of a tree, the, the gradual growth of, of an apple that's in the, in, in the show. And, and, and then the notion of time and how time is embedded in things and how time affects things. So the, I, I think of this now as a, as, a, as a meditation on my later kind of insistence that when the body came into the work, this was first shown um, in Britain in a show at the Whitechapel in 1981, before I'd made any body cases. And uh, it was, a, you know, I was working out this thing, what is my relationship with, as it were, the history of, of Western sculpture, where the body is frequently uh, shown in dramatic movement. Uh, when my my intuition was that the power of sculpture was really in its stillness and in its placeness. The other beautiful thing about this, I think, is that it looks from a distance like a gigantic fingerprint, but also like, as you say, the walls of a tree. And it seems to me that there's this idea of continuity between the human body and the organic world. Um, and here we have um, your use of watercolour charcoal, the drawings, you've used blood, you've used many different materials in terms of mark making. Um, and can you tell us about the genesis of this series? This is called Body and Light. And uh, I guess with, there are maybe three aspects of drawing that, I, that I'm interested in. I, I, I like the notation. I like the, uh, the idea that, that you can uh, leave a trace but I also want the material itself to be active. So I've never, I've never, I've never been interested in colour per se. I'm always interested in yeah, how uh, yeah, the redness of earth can be made into a pigment, how the redness of blood can be made into a pigment. And here we've got a very basic, uh, so this is carbon, uh, mixed with water, and there's there's a, there's a sense in which an aspect of these drawings, where where when it became very very fluid, of drawing something up from the subconscious, or in a way, almost like looking at tea leaves, allowing what is happening on this surface to uh, engage one and. It's almost like the drawing draws itself. I know this is sounding like 
Madame Blavatsky or something. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, that, the, the, the idea that there's, a, there's, a, there's an arising of something that maybe isn't totally in your control. <laughs> would go, go back one, because I think that... that um, then the, these are much more related to what we were talking about with Trisha Brown. This is, this is literally the orbit of my, of my arm. Uh, you know, a absolutely inscribed line, so this is scratched into a wet paper with where that same carbon and casein has been spread, and, the, and the, this wound in the paper sucks the pigment and allows it to, 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 to go dark um, in that scratch. But this, this, is, this, is, this is like a uh, cardiogram except that it's, you know, this is a moment of lived time in which I, my consciousness is, if you like, at the end of a very sharp burin, and I'm, I'm, I'm recording, as it were, the natural articulation of the arc of my, of my arm. And, and then, most extraordinarily, in the RA, we get to enter that drawing through this astonishing room size installation called clearing. One of the things that you did in installing this, you actually put in a, a ceiling, a light, a ceiling of light, is that right? Yeah, well no, we had to have a ceiling because otherwise this would fall on top of people. Actually I'm trying, I'm, no I'm trying, I, 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 it's never been shown with such absolute delight and wish for engagement as here. Um, so we had, had to reattach it to this new ceiling, but we needed a ceiling. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping one day to be able to make it uh, where it doesn't need a ceiling. Um, but the, the ceiling above this was extremely ornate. I, I, the large western room has, has these yeah, coffered, coffered soffits, very highly decorated. Um, and I just felt that we needed, we, needed, we needed a ceiling that was also luminous. Uh, but actually, that is taking quite a lot of uh, load. It's also... <clears throat> making us participants. We crawl, we jump, we navigate our way through this, through this extraordinary space. And that takes us, I think, quite neatly to the next um, action, which is embodiment. To embodiment. To say, to say something about that, um, you know, why, why would you want to make a three-dimensional drawing? I think so, so much of sculpture, in a, in a sense, is about occupying space. And I, I wanted to energize it, and in the process, in a way, energize the viewer. And that, that idea of denying perspective, putting this line that has no beginning and no end, uh, and inviting the viewer to, in some senses, become part of that field. I think that was, that was the ambition. And, and I think the way it's, it's straining to escape the space makes you feel that you're, you're standing in a field of pure energy. I mean, this thing, it's like ricocheting around the room. It's a really exhilarating experience. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just fantastic. To me, the first time, I think this is the first time that, where there's been such a mixed age range of people coming in. And the way the kids just, they just, you know, this is terrific. We can bang against this thing, we can rattle it. And, and they've kind of, you know, led the adults uh, to a more physical engagement, anyway. Last year, Anthony, you made um, a series of television programmes. One. 
Oh, one yeah. about one the origins of, of art. Um, and perhaps one of the most abiding symbols in prehistoric <laughs> art that we can, we can find um, in caves, amongst cave dwellers, is this example here of, of the hand. Yeah. So, yeah, this, is, this is sort of um, carries on with this idea of the trace. I, I was amazed because I went from Peshmel, uh, you know, in southern France, through to the Maros Caves, then to northwestern Australia, and we find exactly the same trope of this hand stencil. It's very important that it's a hand stencil, it's not a hand print. So this idea of the, of the present absence, the idea of uh, a hand that was in contact with this surface, which has then been removed, but it's registered by this breath. Um, I think the, 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 that idea of the, the shadow the index, the trace that I think we touched on with the Trisha Brown. I think that, that that's become my, in a way, unlocking of how it might be possible to bring the body back into the space of contemporary art that in a sense has been cleared, had been cleared of the body because in a sense it was always the zone of idealization or narrative or whatever. And I was, I was never very interested in that, but I, I like the idea that the body could be treated as a space because we all, in a way, live. That's, that's our first like, dwelling. We all live the other side of appearance. We live uh, the other side of our skins. And Anyway, that, that, that idea of a, of, a, of a trace I found again and again in, in, in Paleolithic art. And of course it raises the issue of time as another dimension of your work. Um, the timelessness of that gesture. It's, uh, it's millennia in its age, millennial, and yet it's still recognisably human and it's still there. Um, so there's, a, there's here, what is that creature that you've this is a very, very early uh, fish, somewhere between a fish and a, and a mollusk. Um, I, I, I only um, suggested it because it's so utterly beautiful and it has this sort of linear quality of, of another energy field. But I guess, you know, for me, what, what, are, what are the swiftest relationships between... If we talk, think about the distance that Giacometti charts between viewer uh, or the artist and, and model, here we have a complete collapse. This is object and referent seen together. This is, as it were, uh, a living body that has become eternal. Uh, and that's what you find in Pompeii. Okay. Um, and Pompeii, the, these, these are extraordinary you know we, we talk about lost wax but this is the lost body this is you know the 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 vaporized bodies the first thing that disappears is the oxygen then the pyroclastic cloud of volcanic dust comes down and molds these people in 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 this moment of transition between life and death i find these incredibly powerful but they're also, for me, a model of 
how, how you might shorten that distance between the observer and the observed. Uh, and of course this, I went and sat for, for three hours with the Tollum man. This is the most, it's very odd, isn't it, the way this looks just like Max von Sydow uh, in his sort of, um, in his role as the seventh seal. Um, but here is a man perfectly preserved in the, in the tannic bogs of uh, central Denmark. Uh, the, that's another example, in a way, of a, of a human fossil. And then we, I, I, I've always been, this is probably a fake, but who cares? So this is St. Francis's um, habit. And I guess that was another thing, you know, in looking at the multiple skins of a tree in growth, can we think about human life as being, in a, in a way, coeval with its context? And so, you know, you live within a skin, but then the skin is covered in clothes, the clothes are then... You know, we find further shelter in, in, in rooms, in buildings, in cities. So that, 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 that idea that, that this tells us in an indirect way about a life. So, yeah, early on, this is just a heavy stone. Um, I guess I was trying to think, well, how, how can we transfer something about the feeling of being somewhere and doing something without illustrating it, but, but just leaving a trace. So this is literally, uh, I, I collected some of these stones off, off, the, off the cliffs in Portland, Bill, and, uh, and literally just carved around where my hands were holding it. And the, 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 it's a strange thing, this, because it's, it's, it's not about trying to transform this stone into a body. It's trying to talk about the relationship of, as it were, mass and materiality with the body while acknowledging the stone's autonomy as a thing in itself. The first time we worked together in 1981, um, you had uh, made a very interesting and strange proposal, which was to eat your own profile out of industrially produced bread, Mother's Pride, in fact. Um, and we showed a version of that called Bed, where there are two figures uh, horizontally laid, almost like the figures you'd get on a tomb, but their profiles are eaten out of this uh, industrial um, sliced bread. Um, so here we get embodiment as actually eating consumption, of getting the world inside you, ingesting you, digesting it. Why did you choose Mother's Pride? No, it was a, that, that was, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that many people in this room will remember Mother's Pride and uh, the way that, uh, you know, it's a very nice... Eight well, you're just week. a very poor student. Well, no, 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 but that's what we had for breakfast, wasn't it? It was a toasted Mother's Pride, medium sliced, um, and, you know, <laughs> with a bit of marmalade. And, uh, no, I mean, the, 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 I guess you can see the relationship between this and, and, and heavy stone. The, the, it, it was a very simple conceit. Um, how uh, this is called consumption, you know, in order to live, we uh, consume. 
we touch and ingest, as it were, you know, between what we eat and what we wear, that is where we live. And this was the sort of time when I was making work with my clothes and, and trying again to bear witness to, to, to in a way, yeah, the place of human existence in, in this kind of, I suppose, spatial trajectory, but then also transformative trajectory. And I, I, the history of sculpture really has been about imposing an image on matter. And uh, I, was, I, I just felt that the act of eating is, as it were, the inverse complement to what Michelangelo did, which was impo imposing mind on matter. What, what you do when you eat is you're transforming matter in, into mind. And yeah, it was, this was just uh, yeah, an early exercise in me trying to find that uh, presence in absence in, the, in, a, in, a, in a substance that re really was relevant and could hold it. One of the other aspects of your work is, is the concealment of the body, the, the wrapping, the shrouding. And here um, we see, we have a privileged view of what's going on inside this work, which isn't actually normally available to the viewer. We walk around this strange, lumpy form, and yet at the heart of it, at the nucleus, almost like the centre of an atom, is the still leaping body. Um, yeah, which is, we, I mean, this is another way of illustrating um, exercise between blood and earth. But rather than, rather than repeating the, the, the profile, I mean, the, the endless skins, one on top of the other. So this is, this is called still leaping. And actually, you know, this is part of that series that we have two of. We have earth and body in the show. So my original idea, and there's a drawing uh, called Mold in the show, which basically shows that, that, that notion. Can we take, can we take this... Uh, in, in this case, very active body, and still it, and put it into, as it were, this spatial condition of containment. I think of this as being, you know, it, it is like a contained explosion. So there's a, you know, this, this, this idea of a perfect sculpture being a bomb that has this, that has this high density, but also this uh, implication of explosive, energy. Um, Whereas here, it's the opposite. It's complete c containment. It's almost claustrophobic to see these handprints emerging from this cube. It's a much denser, more um, intensified containment. And also containing the organic, the soft form of the body within the rigid rectangular, rectangular block of geometric abstraction. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... The, the truth is that the previous work I would have liked to have made solid with the body void as a void in the middle of it. The still leaping would have come out at about 580 tons, which would have made it a very difficult object to uh, transport or really do anything with it. So, I mean, we, we, they're already quite heavy. Um, with this, with this I, I wanted to talk about that relationship of body to space, but in relation to, to architecture. And this, which is in the show, 
is a very simple idea. Can we, can we materialize the space of architecture? And can we make the, the, the material of the body into space? Um, but I, I, I think of this as a, another, I've called it sense, and it is to do with testing the edge, testing the, the confining. Uh, you know, we are the only species that chooses to live, as it were, within the confines of orthogonal geometric spaces. And yeah, for me, for me, that, that work, you're moving me on very fast so that we, <laughs> I can see. I had a lot to say, but who cares? Um, the, uh, the, um, yeah, I mean, this is now trying to then say, well, can we, can we substitute the second body for the first, if, if architecture is our second body? Could I ask, has anyone in the audience entered this piece, which is called Cave? Oh, look, yeah. brave look. Well, you're very brave, <laughs> because it is a very strange sensation to be totally enclosed, embodied in this sculpture, and to lose connection with your sense of orientation and sense of control. So you, uh, tell us about how you scale this up and what kind of journey do you want the visitor to make inside this piece? I just want them to make their journey. Um, and some people yeah, have maybe taken that uh, to extremes, but the, 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 the idea that, that if you are still, and maybe we, we, we experience that mainly just before going to sleep, you know, we've closed our eyes, we are somewhere, and it's very different from the body in action and when we are, as it were, in our normal daily um, kind of goal-orientated lives. And I guess, uh, you know, for me, this, this, this work is a, is a meditation on, uh, I guess, the, you know, the, the body as a, as a place of darkness, but also a place of, of potential. And I... The, in practical terms, you know, this is born in that gallery um, over the road. The, and what I, I guess I wanted to do was to bring back architecture into a primal state of enclosure, both during making that film uh, about how art began uh, but also from very, very early on, I've been, I've, I've really wanted to go into caves and holes in the earth. And what is it? It's because we feel in there, I think we, we in, a, in a sense, are going back in, into the womb. We're going back into the condition of being inside another body only there it's the body of the earth. And I guess that was, my, that was my ambition for this, and that's why I called it cave. That I want, I want us as adult bodies to kind of remember our relationship with, with the earth. Uh, and indeed, that space of dreaming 
which is not, as it were, defined by the, the normal kind of um, spatial kind of uh, yeah, mapping that we do, where we somehow, you know, entering in cave, we are invited to use our whole bodies as sensing mechanisms. Listen, use the acoustic sense to get a sense of the, the space. We're going to move on now. Okay, um, yes, we've got a I lot can tell that. Look at and talk I about. can tell. Um, the idea of massing, which is essential to uh, an aspect of sculpture, which is the idea of mass as a physical entity, and the idea of massing. Um, and here are some of the historical precedents that you've selected, the, the stones of Staines, um, uh, Stonehenge, and the Golbeki Tepi. This is the most incredible place. Uh, I haven't visited it, but this is this is uh, this is before we became farmers. So this is maybe ten thousand uh, years ago uh, in Turkey. This extraordinary ritual center. But I guess what what I'm thinking is here. You know, what what is it that makes um, uh, yeah societies with very little technology wish to make these places? of re, uh, I, I think, reorientation. I think that's one of the things that sculpture can do. And what is a standing stone? Yeah, there's, there's a detail of these extraordinary glyphs that are, are, are carved, probably picked out with a stone because they, 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 they had no metal. Um, and what is it that makes, um, made the, the occupants of, of Rapa Nui make these Maui's? Um, it's, 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 it's simply about using geological time, using, using as it were, the, this material that, that will outlive a, a human life to mark time and mark space. And I think that's what the stones of Stenes yeah. do. It's also the case that these great um, oceanic or, or um, uh, African, um, many, many different sort of so-called primitive forms like this were incredibly important in the story of modern sculpture. That in the beginning of the 20th century, um, artists like Brancusi, for example, was drawn to these elemental forms as a way of radically departing from a story of sculpture which had remained unchanged for about 2,000 years. Um, if you think about the history of Western sculpture from antiquity to the 1900s, it really didn't move much. Yeah, it got very stuck. The figure, and then the revolution happened at high speed, and it was that relation with these primitive forms that, that inspired uh, artists like Brancusi, who has been an inspiration for you, um, and perhaps also Richard Serra. Um, can you tell, tell us something about your relationship with Yeah, I, I with think minimalism? Richard wouldn't like it if you said that he was inspired by uh, prim, prim, primitive. I, I'm not sure about that word either, primitive. No. I think... Um, I think early, um, shall we say, ancient. Yeah, I think that, that what, what this is all about is how, um, in a sense, material in its own right, whether it is made into a... In, into an ancestor figure, as in the Easter Island figures, or is simply articulated, as in this talk to lips of, of Sarah's, that, in, in a sense, it, it, it demands that you re or 
orientate yourself in relation to uh, how how this thing acts in 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 space. The Maoists there's are also a sense of danger about this work, and I think that uh, idea about physically being physically overwhelmed, about having a relation with the sublime, is is part of this. Yeah, I think you feel it with the stones of Stenness that they, and indeed with 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 Stonehenge, that these are asking you to think about things beyond human concern uh, that somehow talk about what lies beyond the horizon and maybe uh, beyond this planet. We haven't got much guess, time. Yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, in, this is me uh, trying to do something very modest but with the same uh, ambition. I think this the scale of this, um, we're in the Australian desert now, and the density of this, you feel as if you're drawing in the energy of the whole desert into this very, very heavy centre of gravity. I really feel with this work that you're pulling on physical forces as well as you know, existential ones to create a sense of uh, a fulcrum, if you like, in the middle of the desert. This is called a room for the great Australian desert. It's not far from Miralingi where, where they did the first atomic tests. Um, the, this is not mass, this is a building, uh, a building, the smallest building that a human being could occupy. So this is based on my body again. Very, um, it's a similar kind of meditation in a way on what the, the relationship between the intimate and the, uh, the, the most distant. If we think about the, the horizon. Sorry. <laughs> um, we're moving now to one of a series of fields that you've engaged other people in making. And here we get the sense of the mass, if you like, not only of the physical mass of the sculpture, but the individual, each one of these figurines was made by an individual. So it's a joint expression of individuals coming together to form a mass. And then the sculpture itself, which is actually, they're no more than, what, nine inches? Yeah, they're hand size. Hand so, size. So and yet they occupy this extraordinary space. And again, I think we have this connection with the idea of the sublime. This is um, an installation in China. In Shanghai, this is an old, you know, an old steel uh, factory that we uh, transformed into a place to look. But, but um, the, you know, the idea here really was to still the viewer. So this, this is a, this is a, a big demonstration. You know, we've got, we've got uh, Extinction um, Rebellion um, doing their thing at the moment. This is, this is sculptural equivalent. You can't get into this building because it is full of uh, these, yeah, very rudimentary forms that are looking at you. Uh, Sorry to move on. Um, and here, a dramatic change of going... scale. Sorry, <laughs> I've had strict instructions. Um, and well, here, shall we the just scale forget about the, Shall we to... forget about the images? Because I think um, we could talk all evening about just field. Because I think the, you know that that whole thing about what 
the relationship is between viewer and object is, well, I, I hope ra radically different in my work insofar as, you know, you in field and to a certain degree with, with critical mass as well, some senses it isn't what you're being shown, it's, it's uh, what you're being confronted with. So this isn't, this isn't uh, a picture, it's a, it's a, it's a phenomena that in some way implicates you. And in, 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 in terms of field, it, 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 you know, here is the earth that's been touched, that is now being made conscious by being given eyes that fixes you and says, you know, we are the spirit of the ancestors, we're also the unborn, and what, what, what kind of world are you making? And I think that's, that's, that's true for, for critical mass as well. This and is... here I think we also get a kind of counterpoint to the, the tradition of the standing figure, the erect figure, the relationship with, for example, Greek statuary, with gods, uh, with objects of worship, with deities, and then with monuments, with generals and kings and figures of authority or power. And this puts figures in a state of collapse. <laughs> and it's a really interesting counterpoint. This is in the Fort Belvedere in Florence, and which is, of course, a city <coughs> of statuary. So I thought this was a very radical uh, counterpoint to the entire Renaissance project, that these, these um, figures are all, these body forms, are all massed on top of one another, uh, standing on their heads. It's, it's an extraordinary... Um, overturning, if you like, of that 2,000-year tradition. Yeah, I, the, you know, for me, this, this was originally made for, for a, a site in Vienna, and it was, I, I felt this was, this was an anti-monument, really, for the 20th century, thinking about the victims in a way of, uh, whether it was the Holocaust or whether it was Rwanda. Um, the idea that, that here in the city in which Pico de la Miranda wrote his uh, hundred verses on, on the perfectibility of man, the idea that, that uh, actually there's a, there's a counter story, that, that somehow civilization is itself based on two yeah, principles, uh, and one is death, uh, in other words, uh, conquest, uh, and the other the trafficking of, of human beings. And, you know, anyway, the, this is one part of an installation. The other part was a line of 12 body forms that, that suggested a kind of evolutionary uh, thing from ground looking to sky looking. Um, here at the Royal Academy, we have these wonderful slab works where massing is really about balance, I think, poise, um, that figures have to be autonomous, even though they, uh, they may be made up of individual components. That, that there's, a, to me, a, a real uh, edge to the room that we enter here because it, one wrong move and you imagine that the whole thing could come to pieces. And I think they exert a tremendous dynamic because of that, because of the balancing act that you, you um, carry off with the slab. Yeah, works. I suppose this is, this is a kind of house of cards um, operation. So we, I'm using, as it were, industrially produced units, cut, gas cut, 
uh, and then doing the minimum to suggest a body position. And I, I think that, broadly speaking, as the work has developed, the degree to which the dead weight um, and articulation of block to block, in other words, the part-whole relationship, is an offer. It's saying, here, here is a this is like going into a building merchant's in which you're invited to, as it were, supply the information that is missing and project onto these assemblies that, that seem to be as much to do with architecture as they are to do with anatomy, uh, the, the, the missing uh, empathy. And here, finally, in this section, we have a mass that is elevated that's defying gravity. Um, and here, this relation, I think, brings us to... Uh, ideas around phenomenology, about the apprehension of space intuitively, not necessarily optically. So this thing hovers above us, um, and yet it's, it's both uh, a, a huge volume, and yet it's translucent and it's, it's flying. Yeah, I don't know whether this belongs in the mass particularly. I think this, I'm just trying, I'm trying here to um, structure space, to, to, to give form to air, but also to think about that, that, that subject that in a, in a sense, certainly for Western art, has been such a, such a focus. You know, how, how, do we, how, you know, how do we command, as it were, particularly in two dimensions, uh, volume? And here, this is a really, you know, this is such an incredible room, and I just wanted to somehow begin to, I suppose, undermine this obsession with perspective by destroying perspective with perspective, and think about uh, another way of dealing with with space. The sorry. Uh, that's, we, we now really are going to whiz through this. Um, we're going to actually move quickly through these historical presidents so we can talk about the work. Um, here we have um, an Nazca aerial lines. view. Um, what, what, what is the source? Nazca. These are the Nazca lines in, Nazca in South America. Um, uh, Richard Long, who was your predecessor. This is, a, this is an, actually one of the Nazca pieces will oh. go on, and, and Sorry, then this is that marvellous work. And, and I think what's significant here is that in the 1970s, so many artists rejected the figure in favour of action, performance, uh, a kind of conceptualisation of the body. Uh, and here Richard Long is walking in a straight line through a meadow. And I feel that, Anthony, you, you pick up on that. You are, in a way, taking the legacy of the dematerialization of the body in the 1970s and reconnecting it with um, a, a, an old tradition of sculpture, that you infuse 21st, 20th century sculpture with this kind of legacy, and also that of the great earth land artists. And here we have Walter Maria's lightning field, and in a loft um, in Worcester Street in Manhattan, a loft which is completely full of earth, the earth room. Um, so the idea of, and here is uh, Walter Maria's vertical, vertical kilometre. Uh, so sight, sighting work, um, 
I wanted to show this. I, I find this work so exhilarating. And here, very, very early work, um, where we, in 1984, you are already testing the body out against space by having this um, surreal uh, figure reaching out. And there's another companion piece where the neck is growing up towards the ceiling. So can you say something about the, yeah, the I genesis think, of this? I mean, I think that you know, Walter de Maria and Richard Long both somehow allowed us to think about the body in space as an experiential field. And I guess I want, I want to think of the body as a field, and this is called field. So it's not about, it, it, it's, it's not about what it's um, showing or doing. It's, it's, as it were, how it catalyzes these two, you could say, uh, contingent uh, spaces. The, the space, the internal space of the body and imagination and, 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 and space at large, whether it's architectural or other. And, uh, you know, I, I think you could think of both of these works in terms of the lightning field and what that incredibly ex in, important experience for me in 1979 was, that sculpture could be a form of acupuncture. Literally, it could be a way of energizing uh, a common ground. So that, that idea of engaging, engaging the viewer's participation and, and, and asking them to become more and more proprioceptive in their passage through space-time. And I think that's what this is called, learning to think. This was, these are five identical, now, hollow lead body cases that I think try to transform, again, that this room, this is a, in a prison in, in Charleston where we took all the, all the glass out of the windows and allowed the air to move through, but to make this into a meditation on, as it were, both the, 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 the containment of the body, but then the potential of, in a way, mental extension and, and, and uh, yeah, escape, you could say. Uh, could I add, I, I think also that the power of your work is that it... It's, it's got an autonomy, it transcends time or, or space, but at the same time, in this context, there's a political resonance because this inevitably evokes lynching. And I think that's what's been so interesting about your, your, your whole career, is that wherever the work is uh, installed, it, it relates to the site, it becomes strangely site-specific. And this is a very, very powerful work um, and very poignant. And I think it shows also the, the kind of, with a small p, the political dimension of, of what you do. Um, we, as Tim said, very recently worked uh, on an abandoned, in a, a, a lost civilization on the island of Delos in Greece. Um, and here we have an aerial view of the amphitheater uh, where you've placed one of a sequence of works each one of which was selected according to the history of the place, the, the physical environment, and its orientation. It's an extraordinary project. It's still on view. If you have time to go to Greece, um, it'll be in, uh, open until the 31st of October. Um, and here we see a work called Knot, which is also balletic, 
And uh, I've realized now it also works as a kind of sundial. Oh. So it's an amazing pivot around which the, this ancient place, which in 300 BC was like the Singapore of the ancient world, and yet was abandoned in 100 AD. Um, and your project there called Site animates these spaces in a way which connects the environment, the, the, the intensification of the present with the past. Yeah, I think, I mean, that notion of the lightning field being a kind of acupuncture there is very connected to an American attitude to, to the wilderness, which I think ignores, as it were, the first Americans and the first nations. I think that what sculpture can do is make this uh, acupuncture, as it were, the awareness of the layers of association of the site even more present. And I think the thing that interests me about Delos was the fact that we have this palimpsest, and literally this is a deconstructed place of high civilization, um, which can, you know, in a, in a way is a, is a kind of future, future map or warning for us, a, a, a place in which the, the, this relationship between the sacred and the economic was highly, highly uh, charged and, 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 and fragile. So, you know, it, this whole place was basically sacked in 69 BC by, by, by pirates. But the, what, I, what I was interested in, are there are other images of this now, but, but I mean, anyway, what, what it's doing is it's not just an acupuncture of, as it were, the, the, the physical remnants or the topography of the place. It's also, in a way, you know, questioning um, human projects, both today and in the deep past. And I guess that is the relationship with time. Sadly, we have to move to the last image. Yeah. So perhaps one of the most testing aspects of the project, I imagine, for Royal Academy staff was to flood one of these rooms um, with um, how many tons of uh, seawater? Um, 30,000 litres. I don't know what that is. Um, uh, Tim said 20 tonnes. I, I don't know what it was. It was a very nice, big, white tanker that came in at night <laughs> and delivered its load up this wonderful um, blue pipe that sort of curled its way up the grand staircase. That was probably the first time that they had a delivery of uh, Atlantic to, to central Piccadilly. And, and in a way it feels as if you brought a very ancient kind of space into the space of the gallery. Uh, we're reminded perhaps of the system, the underground system in Istanbul, of flooded palaces, of, of you know, underwater civilizations. What was your concept behind this? Really, this is, this is the, the um, complement to field. If, if field is the entire occupation of a cultural space, or really any space, by this sort of call to conscience of the earth, uh, each of those bits of clay have passed through touch and human hand, this is the untouched, and it's the, the, the depth of this is in relation to those clay figures. So it's, it, this, is, this is the untouched. This is clay in relation to water rather than clay in relation to fire. And I, I think of this, yeah, this is, this is you know, um, that 
what is it, the third day in Genesis, and there was, there was darkness over the face of the, of the deep. This is the, the, the moment before life arrives. And in a sense, you know, I, I wanted this as, as, as the last moment uh, in the show, as the, the complement, the, the dialectic to Matrix. If Matrix is the ghost of modernity, in a way, the, this, this, this idea of the urban grid or, or the, the release of the, of the skeleton of the, of the structures in which we have now made our lives. This is the untouched, the unformed, uh, the, the basic elements of land, sea and air that were enclosed in a kind of nuclear protection uh, carapace in, in Gallery 2. And it was very important to me that I removed all sign of the 20th and 21st century, so there's no lighting in there. If you come at night, you see it in the dark, but you still smell it, you still feel it. We, we, we've we've uh, exaggerated the air conditioning in there, so you, you feel this cool, cool air as you stand or uh, stand at the threshold. Um, and I think this is, this is just asking a, a big question, you know, what is, what is the relationship of our species to, as it were, the, the, the elements that support us? Um, and it, it, this is the outside brought in, this is the, the, the basic elements brought within the frame of culture, you could say, as a, as, as a, as a, as a place of contemplation and hopefully reorientation. We have, I think, joining us online, uh, uh, an audience, a virtual audience beyond this room. Um, and I feel sure that people would love to have the opportunity now to ask some questions. Um, I'm going to take one from outside because they couldn't get tickets. So I think it would be nice to give them the opportunity. So we have a question from YouTube. How do you think art could help people in very different worlds, for example, corporate or government environments, to learn to, better, to deal better with the complexity and uncertainty of life? It's a big well, question. that's a big question. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that on the whole, you know, um, I think all of us, but particularly um, leaders of corporations, just need to have more holidays. Um, I, I, I just think that uh, we're—I don't know—I don't know who's driving uh, this kind of this desire to constantly expand and constantly sort of find new markets and 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 make things that we don't really essentially need. So the the um, I, w I would like, uh, yeah. All of those Googlers, I, I have a studio near King's Cross and there Google's now making their kind of vast headquarters there. Um, and I'd like them all to come uh, and, and spend half an hour looking at, uh, looking at a host. Um, I don't know whether that'll help them deal better with the complexity and uncertainties of life, um, but it might be nice. <laughs> Might be nice for them. Yeah, we um, can only hope. Um, <laughs> perhaps I could take a question now from the floor. Yeah. Sorry, could you wait just yeah. for the microphone? Thank you. Hi. I'm very interested in the way your um, project is almost antithetical to the Renaissance project. So if 
Michelangelo is trying to free the body from the stone. I sometimes think of your work as trying to return the body. And I'd like to ask you, um, what non-Western art do you find has most influenced your own project? Well, I, I'm, I'm very, very moved by um, Southern Indian uh, bronzes, Kola and Pala in particular. Uh, if we think of, you know, Shiva Nataraja, uh, that we have a wonderful example of at the British Museum, which is essentially the lord of the dance, the lord of creation and destruction. Um, this poised figure that, that stands on one foot, um, but is encircled with a ring of fire. Um, the visiting Mahabalipuram and seeing the descent of the Ganges, this extraordinary carving made um, in a yeah, very close to the beach um, in Tamil Nadu. Uh, a, an expression of the complexity and continuity of life. Um, this mixture of elephants and animals and humans um, and at the centre uh, a sadhu or ascetic um, in meditation. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've been very, very um, moved and influenced, I think, by the inherent stillness of great uh, Buddhist art. So, for instance, the, the Paranirvana uh, in Polonarua in Sri Lanka, this extraordinary, again, carving made out of the living rock of a, of a cliff face that is about 70 meters, no, maybe that's too long. It's very, very big anyway. <laughs> so 50 meters, maybe, uh, long. Um, and there, there's something there about just saying, let us think again, what is a sculpture? Let us think again about what is a human being? Very, very simple questions that are not about the celebration of heroes or about the sexualization of the body. We have a question from, I, I think, probably a young budding artist. Um, do you have any advice for artists starting their careers? Um, yeah, just keep doing it, basically. I mean, there's no... The, the, uh, I grew up always sort of thinking that you had to wait um, for the attention of others, uh, but then I realized that actually you, you could ask for it, or maybe not ask for it, but actually just by putting your work on the beach, in the road, on a path in the mountains, in a sense, you're not asking for um, admiration you're beginning a conversation. And I think that, you know, that, that is what art is. It's a, it's a conversation. Uh, here, here is something that I've found necessary to make. Um, I'd like to share it with you. Um, that, that desire, I think, is really fun, fundamental to, to human being. And I think 
if you believe in it and it gives you joy, uh, people will feel that. So I think the, the, the main thing is just to do it and uh, not to, 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 I'm not sure about that word career. I think art is a vocation. And um, you know it if it is your calling and uh, you just got to follow it. Um, could we have another question from the floor? Uh, there's one over here, please. Thanks. Hi, Anthony. I came in one morning um, to the courtyard and I noticed Anthony was, it was quite early and Anthony was watching uh, people come in and seeing whether people would notice the Iron Baby. And I've, as I've been coming in to see the exhibition many times over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed um, one person I came with was brought to tears. A lot of people need to touch the baby and they're quite protective of the baby. And it provokes so much quite emotional response. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit more about that work and whether you're surprised by the response that it solicited. I think in the end, you want to touch people. And I think that that, that physical need to, in a sense, you, I think, Sculpture works, yeah, on, on your imagination, on your sight, but, but you, want to, you want to touch it in order to make contact. And it's such a basic, uh, I think that's a basic human reaction. And the, you know, I think the whole idea of doing something very concentrated that was to do with life, to do with continuance, to to, to be, you know, to by implication involve all of the learned societies and the, this, this, you know, wonderful, yeah, architecture of the courtyard, but in, in, in a sense put that uh, in, the, in, in the materialized thought of human future. I mean, that, anyway, that, that's making it very grand. I mean, the, the, the sculpture was... Um, I made a, a carving in, in plaster and polystyrene of Paloma, my, our youngest child, aged. She was six days old. And I just wanted to acknowledge, I think, the, the, the extraordinary, well, just that feeling of it's two things utter vulnerability and yet utter uh, faith or. Um, this expression of dependency, so that that body, in a in a sense, could have been on on Vickens' tummy, and then moving it to the earth, to the ground, to the to the as it were the common. I just wanted to, I suppose, um, it's very similar to to, to host. Um, just make something that was an expression of everything that um, supports us. We have a question here which relates to the climate crisis. Mm. Um, and you're, you're being asked, should artists or sculptors today strive to have a sustainable practice 
What, what do you think your role is in terms of this wider Yeah, I, I think that is a really important question and we're, we're just going through our second carbon audit of the studio. Um, I'm very, very aware that, that, you know, to cast the Iron Baby, let alone uh, to make something like Cave, uh, you know, the, the footprint of those works is enormous. I would like to feel that their impact justifies, as it were, the cost to the planet. But maybe that's wishful thinking. Um, I'm interested in uh, all, all materials. I think that my obsession with, with, with iron um, is, uh, well, for me, justified by what iron is and what, what it is for the planet and the, the fact that it exists in the core of the planet. Um, but I think I have to use it with purpose. Um, anyway, I think that this, this question of what is a moral and sustainable attitude to art practice in a, in a, in a, in a time of real global crisis in terms of the, of the, of the climate is, uh, is one that we have to take seriously. And yes, I am uh, looking to have a sustainable practice and therefore um, I think we, 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 are, we are now looking at tree planting and other forms of offset uh, that can in some way balance And it's, it is the fact also that you've innovated new techniques in casting uh, by using vacuum and vibration to, mm. to pack your figures. So I, I think it's, it's a kind of combination for us all, isn't it, of our working practices, our organisations, and in this case, your, the studio, and then also what the meaning of the work can contribute to raising consciousness. And yeah, I think it's both. I, so, you know, we, we have put as many solar panels on, on, the, on the roofs of our uh, studios as we can. Um, but that is in no way equivalent to the uh, amount of electricity, for example, that we use to smelt, to smelt iron. Um, but I think the, the actual practices themselves, so the heating, lighting, and uh, working environments of, of, of the studio are important to look into, which we do. But then I think the, uh, the actual techniques so we, we, we're not using resin set sand, for example, which is, which is one, uh, as Ivana said, one, one very, very toxic and uh, yeah, bad use of materials. Do we have time for another question? No? We're finished. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here tonight. Anthony um, has signed some copies of the catalogue, which you can find outside. Um, I want to thank you for your patience uh, and for coming on this wonderful journey with us. Thank you, everybody who joined us online. And finally, please join me in thanking Anthony Gormley. <laughs>